Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Francine Lacroix in London, David Gura off. David sent us, Francine, a photo of his seats at the Super Bowl. It's unreal. He's like literally, I kid you not, at the 47-yard line. It's just, I don't know which side he's on, like Patriots or Falcons. Um, This is beyond well-timed. We take it uh, as a great privilege to have Alan Kruger with us on Jobs Day. But, Professor Kruger, I, I think there can never be a better time to speak to you now about the raging academic debate that we've seen within Trump presidential politics. And that is led by Brad DeLong of Berkeley, Danny Roderick of Harvard, Jared Bernstein weighing in as well on the effects of NAFTA on jobs in America. And it comes down to what you and Carr did years ago, which is the distribution on low-wage people. Let's start with uh, the obvious first question. Has NAFTA been good or bad? For the American worker. On that, I think NAFTA has been very positive for the U.S., including for uh, the vast majority of American workers. You could give longer answers than that. You're allowed, you're <laughs> I can elaborate on why. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I think, uh, first of all, having a stable, prosperous Mexico on our border is very much to our interest. Uh, secondly, uh, there are synergies between us and Mexico. Um, I believe that globalization and trade have had distributional effects. I think China has, a much, has had a much more profound effect on uh, the wages of less skilled American workers than trade with Mexico has. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I think the research suggests that NAFTA has had a beneficial effect in terms mm-hmm. of lowering prices for consumers, which have been particularly beneficial for low-income Americans. So, Professor, are we confusing globalization, inequality, innovation, and actually just wealth distribution? Well, we've had profound changes over the last 30 years in inequality and wealth distribution in the U.S. and in many countries around the world. I think the driving force has been technology. Uh, Manufacturing has been losing jobs around the world because of increased productivity. At the same time, I think that trade does create winners and losers, and we haven't done enough to help those who were dislocated by trade. This word distributional to labor economists like yourself is a big deal. Define distributional. Professor Roderick up at a school in Cambridge called Harvard. Uh, Distributional for Danny Roderick is really front and center, where Brad DeLong at Berkeley diminishes that. What is distributional effects? Well, distributional is very simple to define. It's who gets what, how we split up the pie. And growth has to do with the size of the pie. And I think one of the things we've seen over the last 30 years is that growth is necessary but not sufficient. You know, if you look at uh, this fascinating new study by Raj Chetty and his co-authors on the chances that children have higher income than their parents, uh, we've seen a massive shift 
over the last 40 years in the U.S., where we've gone from over 90% of children earning more than their parents uh, at age 30, when you compare them yeah. to comparable ages, uh, to about half uh, for the most recent cohort. That's driven by distributional right. changes, not by slower and, growth. And Francine, this is, jump in here, Francine, with one more question. We'll have Professor Kruger back. But Francine, that's the heart of the McKinsey analysis of this year, it, right. is our children and the effect on them. Right. But, Alan, I guess the, the question is, even if, you know, could you not suppose that you want to create a smaller pie, right? But if you have protectionist measures, then you actually directly uh, redistribute wealth as you make it. I think it's a very blunt instrument. If we want to redistribute wealth, I think there are far more efficient tools, more direct tools, particularly targeted to those who have struggled the most, which are those uh, at the very bottom of the wage distribution. Uh, earned income tax credit, minimum wage, I think, are much more uh, targeted tools uh, to help uh, that group as opposed to trade, which is a very blunt instrument. Professor Kruger, uh, he's the former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors for President Obama, of course, at Princeton uh, University, and has done particularly uh, recent work uh, among its many interests on uh, the gig economy uh, as well. Francine Lacroix in London, I'm Tom Keen. I'm in here. Francine, help me here. You've done a lot of analysis. Falcons or Patriots? Falcons. I go with whatever Elarian says. Uh, okay. There you go. I'm sorry, Tom. Okay. Why you be up? sure she gets one question in the next one hour? <laughs> Robert Dahl with us here. And Bob, this is fabulous to have you here. Within American corporations and your optimism on the bull market, are they the kind of jobs being formed that corporations used to do for us? Or is this a different job economy than what we think from Monsanto or DuPont or Eastman Kodak of another time? improved as the um, business cycle has gone on. Early on, remember, there's all that criticism, all low-paying jobs. That's not the case anymore. It's a wide swath across sectors and types of jobs and uh, quality of jobs. So um, I, I think we're in, in a much better jobs picture than we were early in the cycle when we couldn't get the jobs thing going. Is it part-time America? No, it's not. Um, yeah, Are there a lot of part-time jobs? Sure, I won't deny that. But... A lot of these jobs are uh, full-time jobs. You know, companies are struggling to find good, skilled workers. And so that's why the amount of time it's taken to fill an open position has doubled since the end of the Great Recession. That's why we're seeing wages slowly move higher. Uh, the companies are paying up to get good, skilled workers. It's a, it's a much healthier place. Bob, who's hiring? If you look at the industry groups, and we're talking a little bit about small businesses compared to bigger businesses earlier on on TV, it feels like a million years ago. But is there a wave in the business cycle that means they're hiring a lot more than everyone else? I, I no, I don't. I don't think so. Um, uh, look, we all know that over the long term, all the net job growth takes place in small companies. Big businesses are net net approximately zero. So. Uh, small companies are coming back around. They're still slow because they still have the health care concerns. Uh, they haven't had the tax relief that they're hoping to get. So uh, it, it's, it's health care, uh, it's technology, um, selected consumer areas. It, it's, it's broadening out, in my view. I, I, I look at how it's broadening out, and it just assumes wage 
increase. Do you observe that? What do you hear from corporations and the analysts at Nuveen about actual wage pressure at companies? I don't see it yet. It's moderate, but it's improving. I, I think we bottomed out at about a 1.5% annual year-over-year wage growth. Now we're running 29 and my guess is that is heading into the threes. It's, it's a slow creep. Um, you know, four sort of a flashpoint. I hope we don't get there anytime soon because that begins to pressure corporate profit margins. So uh, uh, more and more people are getting wage rate gains, and uh, that's a healthy thing for the consumer and therefore for the economy. So, Bob, you follow equities, and so you follow CEOs, companies. Talk to me about the behavior of a CEO. When does a CEO or a company decide to increase wages? Is it because they're in a shortage of supply, because it's, you know, extra skilled workers? Talk me through it. You know, they look at lots of things. They look at how hard is it to find uh, the the new incremental worker. Uh, They look uh, intensively at people who leave. Uh, when nobody's leaving, they don't raise wages. But when uh, the, the levers increase, uh, wage rates have to move up. Uh, they look around them to see what other companies are doing. You know, the things you and I would do to pay attention to the environment, that's what they're doing. And uh, that's leading to a slow but steady increase in wage rates. Do you see investment? I believe I learned in school that investment creates jobs, which creates consumption. It's something like, is that, is that rule still effect yeah, it, in it's Trump a, America? It's a good rule. We have not seen the pickup in investment. It's been absent um, in a significant degree this cycle yeah. uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. Corporations just don't have a lot of confidence uh, and conviction about the long term. Maybe the fiscal policy and tax reform that uh, is on the agenda will cause them to begin to do more yeah. investment, uh, more cash back home well, if we get repatriation. But so far, uh, we're not there. Well, I mean, Bob, this is important. And, and, and one of the high points for Bloomberg this week was our conversation, John Micklethwaite's uh, conversation with Mr. Immelt of General Electric. Take GE as an industrial proxy. I guess I could take UTX or you name the company. But the answer is, can Bob Dahl be long GE-like stocks? Yeah, um, you know, GE in particular, they just can't get out of their own way. And the restructuring's uh, uh, been late and the earnings gains have been so-so and the revenue growth. So we're pretty lukewarm on GE. But let's take an Ingersoll Rand, you know, related businesses. That company's growing. Uh, It it has need for more more workers and they're hiring some people. Um, So you've got to still be selective in these industrial areas. Are technology companies, Bob, hiring American? Uh, yes, yes, and and also hiring uh, foreigners. They're hiring both. Um, I, I think that um, when you look at the uh, uh, graduates from um, uh, the big technology schools, the, their, the ability of those uh, folks to get jobs has moved up in the, in the last couple of years. But they're still hiring uh, workers uh, outside the U.S., India, to, for the usual um, uh, businesses that you see happening there. So it's, it, it is more geography than just the U.S. for sure. Mr. Trump may stop that, but uh, for now, right? I was going to no, but I was going to. That's exactly where I was going, Bob. If you have immigration bans, and if this goes into like working visas, and if we see uh, a lot of this, um, you know, going and being expanded, does it mean that it will actually create jobs in America, or not necessarily because it could hurt profit at the same time? Yeah, I I think that once the more restrictions you put on, the less efficient the economy is going to be, and so. uh, 
Uh, I'd love Mr. Trump to make it so attractive for um, businesses to hire workers here through tax reform and economic growth uh, that they do it naturally rather than putting up barriers that you can't. Yeah, Bob, one more question. I want to go to Francine on on the greater picture uh, on this Jobs Day. Again, folks, about 20 minutes away from that report. Bob Dahl with us with Nuveen and then uh, Bill Gross uh, will be with us. Nuveen is a bond house. It's your heritage out of Chicago. You do the coupon. At what point do the bonds become a competition for your equity world? To me, we're nowhere near that. I agree. Um, so, so we've seen the ten-year Treasury move from one thirty-seven up to two fifty. Um, you know, without a three-handle, I don't get worried. And even a three-handle yeah. is not a big deal. Part of its pace, yeah. Tom. If we get the three tomorrow morning, yeah. bonds will be competitive. But if it's a gradual thing, stocks will be fine. Bob, we were talking earlier about the equity market and when the bond coupon begins to compete. Let's combine in your work with the work of Bill Gross over uh, at Janus, this idea of equities and bonds. From where you sit, do you need to own both? Well, you know, diversification says the answer to that question is yes. So I think it's a matter of proportion. And my view is whatever normal is for you, risk, reward, time horizon, income needs, et cetera, just be, you know, yeah. 10, 15 higher than normal in stocks, 10 to 15 lower in bonds, because interest rates are probably going to creep higher, which means we have a better economy, which means better earnings. Therefore, I like stocks right. over bonds. We have a, a joke that we do here, which is with John Tucker, the opening of the 401k envelope, which is we sedate him and he opens his 401k. They don't do that with me, folks, because I'm in the double leverage all cash fund. Uh, but but that's a Nuveen product. Uh, but But Bob... How do I catch up if I'm behind? I've got a guy listening right now in New York. He's in his fancy Maserati. He's a hedge fund guy who did 4% last year, and he's scared you know what. Or I got a retiree out in Iowa listening right now. Talk to them both about how you catch up. So if you have $300 on the sidelines, earmark for the stock market, and you don't know when to get in. Put 100 in now. Take a $100 cost average over the next six months, and if we get a dip like we always do, take the last 100 and put it in. Have the guts of your conviction at the hardest time when your stomach doesn't feel so good. Last year, that was January, February. Isn't 2017 different, and should we worry about dollar strength, Bob? Uh, every year is different. Obviously, dollar strength, uh, to the extent it continues, will provide a headwind for uh, multinational companies here in the U.S. And so my view is overweight domestic companies, underweight the multinationals. Why fight the uh, the strength of the dollar plus weaker economic growth elsewhere? I want those domestic companies. Right. But what is the one thing? Is there a level on the dollar that which at which you start worrying? I, I, I think it's more about pace than it is level. If it's slow and steady increase, we can live with it. But it's these big gaps that we see from time to time that, that, that create problems. Um, look, we've already we, we've already been through an earnings recession over the last couple of years. And half the reason was the strength in the dollar that could come again. Let's hope not. Bob, I want to talk about a mystery stock. Bob Dahl loves when I do this. Bob can't talk about individual securities. That's part of the game, folks. How about a mystery stock trading at three times sales, 27 times cash flow, with a total enterprise value to EBITDA of 44.73? All you need to know about that goofy ratio, folks, is this is a richly prized beast. I'll give you a hint. They're out in Seattle. How do you own an Amazon, Bob? When you're when you read Graham Dodd and Cottle, 
Yeah, I'm with you. I, uh, you know, great business model. They've been doing great things, but my goodness, is it price per perf- perf- perfection? Uh, my view is it is. Every time I look there, I, you know, I buy something else uh, where I can touch um, uh, the earnings and the cash flow and, and and sleep at night over the valuation. It's an expensive stock, and you know, all they have to do is you know not quite come through on revenues like they did last night, and they take the stock down some. Bob, I need to push back a little bit on the, the optimism that we see for, uh, especially from equity folk like yourself. What's good out there in the world? Is it, there, there seems to be much more upside risk than there was only six months ago. Yeah, so make no mistake about it. I'm, I'm only looking for five for the stock market, two from dividends. That gets me a 7% year. Stock selection is going to be necessary to get me to 10 if I'm going to get there. So uh, the long-term return on stocks is 10. I'm looking for mm-hmm. half that. So it count, right. count me in the cautiously optimistic view. The tailwind is earnings. Earnings growth is pacing at 8% uh, for the fourth wow. quarter. That's great news. That's great news. I mean, it's, but that's what we expect, right? It's like 300 beeps above nominal GDP, right? But we haven't had 8% for many quarters. That's, yeah. that's, that's the issue. And now we have that bit of a tailwind. Yeah. Uh, look, if interest rates and inflation creep a bit higher, at some point we'll have a, a, a headwind called pressure on multiples, pressure on valuations to accompany the tailwind. And that's why I'm five-ish rather than 10 or 15-ish. Right. I'm writing down here, folks, off the terminal where we are as we go to the jobs report. Bob Dahl, very quickly here, just in a matter of seconds, you can stay long equities given a 227,000 statistic. I agree. Uh, better than expected job growth. And uh, uh, the fact is we're getting jobs and not having to pay uh, workers more, at least in this report. Remember last month, uh, the number was uh, wages were up 0.4. You take the two uh, and you get right. a 3% year over year number. And that's kind of where we are. Bob Dahl of Naveen, thank you so much. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. Bill Gross joins us now with uh, Janus Capital. Uh, Bill, this is the final jobs report for President Obama. I would suggest you want to step forward that this is a constructive jobs report for President Trump as well. Yes, and I, I think a little schizophrenic, as you just pointed out yeah. in the last minute or so. Uh, you know, jobs grow, grow strong, but uh, wages revised down by 0.2%, and instead of 2.7% annual, now 2.5%. I, I suppose that's uh, good for corporate profits to keep wages down, but ultimately we know that uh, it's consumers and consumption that drives the economy. And if they don't uh, earn enough money or if their uh, money is only growing at 2.5%, then that's a slow-growth economy. So sort of schizophrenic report, and I can see how markets might interpret it one way or the other. I want to bring this right over, Bill, to the bigger picture this morning. Again, futures advanced, Dow futures up 95, not near the 20,000 level. But I like what Bill said there about a schizophrenic tape. Bill, if we get a reflation from where you sit, is it a reflation that gives us an inflation boost, or can we actually hope that the real economy will boost with the Trump stimulus? Well, sure, and that's uh, the hope that uh, real GDP, which is now around 2%, and 
uh, actually for the quarter with the Atlanta Fed uh, above 3%. But uh, the hope is that we're in a 3 to 4% real GDP economy. That was the promise from the Trump administration. That's the hope in terms of fiscal policy and stimulation, deregulation, and so on that uh, we look forward to. I remain skeptical, I guess. I, I remain you know, of the, of the camp that uh, the productivity is the key to real GDP growth. We know labor force growth is less than 1%, so it's all productivity. And what produces productivity? Investment. Investment hasn't been there, as you've discussed, for the past 30 minutes. And to the right. extent that it remains anemic, then productivity will remain anemic. And I think we're stuck in a 2% real GDP uh, world, no matter what the fiscal stimulation and no matter what the deregulation. One of the exogenous shocks, and folks, we have to remind ourselves that Mr. Gross, for decades, has had an international perspective where dollar dynamics really are, are there. A, a key conversation, Bill, this week was with Barry Eichengreen of the University, University of California at Berkeley, and Professor Eichengreen was adamant that Mr. Trump will lead us towards dollar strength. Do you show up at every day at Janus just assuming dollar strength? No. I mean, the dollar's had a good rally, and certainly against uh, some emerging countries like the Mexican peso, a significant one. Uh, so I don't assume continuing, uh, continuing dollar strength unless, you know, the Fed stays ahead of the ECB or the Fed stays ahead of the BOJ. And, you know, at the moment, that's not the case. Both those central banks are still, uh, you know, s stuck on mm. quantitative easing of significant proportions, and that's led to the dollar rally, and that's led to stronger growth in the United States. But, um, you know, I, I think there's some catch-up uh, coming uh, into the equation from Japan and from Euroland. Uh, their growth rates are close to 2% as well. And so, yeah, dollar growth and dollar appreciation is uh, certainly not assumed. I, I don't think we have a, a new plaza accord ahead of us in which the dollar, right. the strong dollar, threatens the global economy, and we have to take some significant measures. I don't see that. Bill Gross, let me frame uh, what keeps surveillance going, which is two perspectives. We've got your caution with a 2% GDP. Peter Hooper, the esteemed economist at Deutsche Bank Securities, would suggest a more optimistic tack. What is missing from the optimists? What are they missing about their belief that we do get good, if not great, economic growth, and by definition, a higher interest rate regime. How will that not happen? Well, I think they have a point. Uh, you know, if, if you have a strong fiscal program, we don't know what it is, uh, but if it's a trillion to two trillion over 10 years, you know, that, that's a plus a half a percent over the next several years. There's, there's no doubt about that. And with the corporate taxes being cut, there's the potential for a, a near-term stimulus. I'm, I'm talking about real GDP over a relatively longer period mm -hmm. of time, three to five to, to 10 years. And I think we're stuck in this 2% zone. But uh, yeah, the, the short-term optimists, uh, you know, I'll grant them three, uh, perhaps over the next year or two. And that's a, right. that's a positive for equity markets. But, and, and that's a positive uh, as well for higher inflation and a positive for higher bond yields. And uh, I can talk about that in a second. Well, we'll talk about that. But, you know, the inflation, the idea of, of higher bond yields. But critically here, I know, Bill, in your office at Janus, you've got a Bloomberg terminal. It's a vanity terminal. You barely look at it. You're still wedded to your Monroe trader. The fact is you're still back looking at the most basic calculator out there. Does your Monroe trader tell you you can buy bonds right now, whether full faith and credit? or foreign or corporate? 
Yeah, I, I think to a certain extent, and the, and the reason is, Tom, is, is that other central banks are buying bonds. You know, the, the U.S. went off the habit, so to speak, the QE habit about two years ago, but the ECB, the BOJ, the you know, the Bank of England are still in there plugging at $150 billion a month. That's a, that's a lot of money. That's right. basically, uh, you know, $1 to $2 trillion a year going into the bond market, and that provides tremendous support. For instance, in terms of arbitrage, you can move into the treasuries at 245 you know, from bonds at 45 basis points and pick up 200. Currency adjusted, you can even pick up, you know, uh, 50 to 60 basis points from bonds to treasuries. Same thing with JGBs at uh, basically 10 to 15 basis points, huge arbitrage there, even currency adjusted. So to the extent that you've got 150 billion coming in a month from these central banks, right. basically it means that <clears throat> central banks are still supporting a low interest rate environment. I don't like that, right. but you have to recognize it as an investor. And, and this is very important, folks. What you just heard from Mr. Gross there is a classic long short of what you do nation to nation given divergence. Are you picking up dimes in front of a bulldozer? Are you going to get run over by the Trump administration? doing your cute arbitrage? Well, I think you have to be careful, I, and, yeah. and that's why Janus Unconstrained, we've, we've got a zero duration, but we've got the arbitrage between bonds and treasuries. I, I'm of the persuasion, and I think I've talked about this uh, last month, that you know, U.S. treasuries at 2.6 or 2.65 is a, a critical area, and that's a technical type of interpretation, but it's a long-term trend line, Tom, you know, going down from right. 1984, and it's been hit on the upside by seven, eight, nine times. Uh, 2.6 is very critical, and and if we get higher inflation and higher yields relative to 2.6, then we've got a bear market. It is Jobs Day, and we say good morning, everyone. Bill Gross uh, with us with Janus Capital. Francine, uh, l let me talk to uh, Mr. Gross here about what we're observing in Europe. Bill, there are telltale signs of inflation in Europe and massive divergence. Is it an opportunity for you to see the difference in yield between Italy and Spain or the difference in yield between Germany and Italy? Italy. Is that an opportunity when you're unconstrained like Bill Gross? Well, sure, it's an opportunity. Uh, you know, the difference between Italy and Germany is really a risk spread and dependent to some extent on uh, developments in, in Italy. Uh, same thing, I suppose, in France, although the the spreads are, are very tight, but uh, moving out and widening to some extent based upon fears of uh, uh, elections later in the year. So, you know, it, it's a political type of situation in terms of those uh, particular countries, but they're all, as you know, joined by the the ECB policy rate. And uh, the bigger arbitrage, to my way of thinking, is between bonds and U.S. Treasuries. Bonds are uh, so overvalued and under-yielded at 0.45%. Uh, uh, one of these days, uh, when quantitative easing disappears or at least is reduced uh, you know, with the ECB, then, uh, then bonds will uh, lose a bid and start to move higher in terms of yield. So I like that spread the best in terms of a short and a long. Bill, are you expecting, if you look at the European recovery, is it for real? And if it is for real, when will the ECB start scaling back some of this QE? 
Yeah. I, I think it's for real. I mean, the euro's gone down uh, and, and depreciated, which uh, provides a push in, in, in terms of their particular economy relative to the rest of the world. I, I think all global or many global economies are stronger simply because the Chinese over uh, a 12 to 18-month period of time have been so strong in terms of you know, fiscal spending and debt accumulation and debt growth. You know, ultimately, uh, it's a potential disaster, but for the moment, the Chinese are leading the way. They're the locomotive in terms of fiscal stimulation. Uh, the ECB is the locomotive in terms of monetary stimulation. So I, I think it's real temporarily. Um, and, and the Euroland can support a 2% growth rate, and therefore, you know, there's a huge arbitrage between, as, as I mentioned, uh, German boons and uh, U.S. Treasury. Same thing with JGBs. It's an enormous spread and uh, provides an opportunity. How are you expecting this to end in 2017? You have very um, possibly explosive political elections in France and Germany and Netherlands at a time where also Peter Navarro is accusing Germany of cheating America by having a surplus. <laughs> well, I think they have for a long time. Uh, you know, ever, ever since uh, you know the 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 EU was uh, was put together in terms of uh, exchange rates, I think Germany came in at a very favored level, and for a long, long time now, relative to their own neighbors, relative mm -hmm. to Italy, relative to Spain, France, uh, and and I, I think there's common agreement there for from most uh, observers that Germany is yes. Uh, Picking their own neighbors and picking the, the United States, uh, you know, in terms of the euro, uh, in, in terms of a significant surplus. What they have a nine percent uh, trade balance surplus against their own neighbors, and uh, Germany says, well, that's just because uh, we're doing well. I think it's because mm -hmm. of how they came into the uh, the system itself. I want to remind everyone that Bill Gross was known as a bond exploiter for years, uh, as as well. Bill, help me here uh, with uh, something you made worldwide headline on in surveillance years ago, which is where one day you said, yes, a Procter & Gamble growth of dividend can be a yield proxy. Are we still in the vicinity of a stock dividend and dividend growth being a yield equivalency, or is that going to shift with a vengeance at some point? Well, I, I think uh, you, you, can, you can talk about an equivalency as long as the the fear of deflation uh, is off the board, and, and we're beginning to see that, Tom, right, with uh, the potential for reflation as opposed to deflation. You know, a yield proxy, a Procter & Gamble 2 or 2.5% 2 yield, you know, uh, high-quality company that it is, in a period of deflation, uh, you know, provides uh, or uh, allows for risk to that dividend. And mm -hmm. so, you know, yield proxies for stocks, you know, become more and more uh, certain and more and more um, stable as we move from deflation to reflation. And so mm -hmm. I think that is a, a consideration that stock investors relative to bonds should uh, should favor. Seems ages ago, Bill, and again, thanks for your generosity of joining us here on our Fed coverage and our Jobs Day coverage as well. We greatly appreciate it. But Bill Gross, you've had two weeks to observe Trump politics in the Trump presidency. Do you get a sense of an industrial policy from Mr. Trump? Is there a, a vision yet of what we're going to see for the coming four years? Well, perhaps in, in, in terms of at least proposals for uh, lower corporate tax rates and proposals for uh, less regulation, uh, you know, that to a certain extent is a 
is a corporate policy, but uh, you know, Trump ran basically on a, a policy for middle class America uh, for uh, providing jobs, you know, presumably through industrialization, and, and perhaps those are tied together. Um, you know, I, I'm yet to see uh, proposals in terms of uh, middle class America, Wisconsin, uh, Ohio. Uh, Michigan, the, the states that uh, put him over the top. Um, so we'll have to wait and see. I, I'm fearful that when they lower corporate tax rates that uh, there won't be a quid pro quo in, in terms of uh, higher revenue um, or, or balanced type of revenue. I, I think those types of things always work out to the favor of corporations and good for corporations yeah. in terms of the stock market, but bad for people in terms of uh, you know their percentage of uh, of GDP. What does the um, Donald Trump presidency mean for the rest of the world, Bill? This is one thing you know. We all the EU leaders are gathering today in Malta, and uh, the meeting they're not talking about Brexit. It's all overshadowed about what Trump means for them and for this bloc. Sure, and, and more uncertainty not only in terms of. Uh, Fiscal policy and and um, you know government uh, policies relative to taxation and export import you know those are all important considerations. Uncertainty in terms of geopolitical as well. And so you know I, I I think in the last few weeks you've seen that in terms of markets a recognition that you know it's not all hunky dory in terms of the proposals that the uncertainty that he brings to the presidency almost on a daily basis is uh, you know. Um, has a potential real consequence, and so you know that builds in a risk factor, an equity risk premium that's higher, and therefore you know puts a damper on stock prices going forward. I think. And I guess, and I'm I'm asking you, Bill, the, the biggest implication is what for emerging markets, or if there is a trade war that actually materializes, what does it mean for these emerging markets involved, and therefore for their bonds? Yeah, and certainly for the ones that are specifically pointed out, I mean, a strong dollar is a negative consequence for almost all emerging markets because almost all of them have high debt, dollar debt relative to GDP. But for Mexico, right. for others that uh, you know become targets for Trump, then obviously it's a negative in the short term, at least in terms of investor optimism. Bill, one final question, then I've got to get to the important business of the day. The most mail I get on William Gross is about financial repression. Do you see any end of the financial repression, particularly for conservative savers, in the coming two, three, or four years? Yeah, I, I don't, Tom. And uh, you know, the history of financial repression suggests that it could be 20, 30, 40 years. It, it's basically an attempt on the part of the government to uh, to pay its bills in a in a cheaper fashion mm. to reduce that uh, policy rate below uh, neutral for a long, long time, and that that favors borrowers, right. but it disadvantages uh, those with long-term liabilities and savers like insurance companies, uh, banks, pension funds, right. and, and the like. And so we, we see this imbalance as long as repression continues. We see the potential for imbalances tipping economies and tipping markets over the longer right. term. Bill, one final question, if I could. I know Tom Brady's going to end the game and go, I'm going to Disneyland. I get all that. But what I want to know from Bill Gross is Kyle Shanahan, the offensive co uh, coach for the Atlanta Falcons, is he going to walk off the field and say, I'm going to San Francisco? Is Shanahan going to coach the Gross 49ers? Well, I think he will. I mean, that's that's the 90% uh, probability. And will he help the 49ers? Uh, the 49ers need a quarterback uh, 
very badly and uh, an offensive coordinator becoming head coach uh, what can they do without a quarterback so we'll, we'll see we'll see about that on draft day okay bill gross thank you so much moving forward see how gross does that john tucker he just migrates right past the super bowl to draft day he has such a vision he doesn't even do you know he does not care about the atlanta falcons and the new england patriots Neither do I. Okay, thank you. And <laughs> wait a minute, and Francine, and Francine Neither does doesn't Francine. care. No, Vomer, help me here. Do you care about the Super Bowl? I spent all morning reading the 17-page Super Bowl preview of the New York Post. Thank you, New York Post. Thank you, Bill Gross. This is Bloomberg. This is a joy, folks, to go from Alan Kruger to Robert Dahl to William Gross to one James Grant and his Grant's interest rate observer. And and, and Jim, I love what you wrote here. What card-carrying contrarian can resist the invitation to fade the mass consensus of the New York Times, the Financial Times, the New Yorker, the Guardian, the Washington Post, and the Brooklyn Heights Press and Cobble Hill News? The market's got a one-way bet going, right? Uh, it would seem to. Um, we propose that uh, if there were a common stock and the ticker were, say, DJT, and that stock perhaps represented a certain someone in the White House, what you would observe is it seemed to continue to make new highs, or at least to apparently want to go up, in the face of almost unanimous negative sentiment from the analytical community, mainly the press. It's a little bit glib, but then again, this is the mass media, right? I mean... Yeah. Bill, Francine LaCroix wants to jump in here very quickly. Is this a gilded age? Can we just finally say, as you've written about for years, that it is a plutocracy and that everybody has gold knobs in their bathroom, you know, hot and cold knobs? Well, um, uh, there's not enough gold, it seems to me, for one thing, uh, in view of the evident uh, uh, tail risk. You know, Donald Trump, it seems to me, is the is the avatar or the personification of what they call in the trade tail risk, meaning the, um, the possibility of extreme outcomes, both good and bad. Um, Trump is, uh, uh, will seemingly say anything. I don't think he'll actually do anything, uh, but he is a most unpredictable entity. You know, um, the characteristic of this age with respect to money is that uh, uh, it is lighter than air. Indeed, it is. Uh, it lacks any substance at all. It's you know, it's it's a digital thing. It's an X or an O. It's a piece of paper at its most tangible. And in the central banks, we have institutions that uh, uh, that manipulate interest rates, the most critical prices in capitalism. So it's a, it's we have a unique presence, it seems to me, in the White House, and we have a, an, a, an unusual, if not unique, set of monetary institutions. All of which, I think, points to, the again, the likelihood of really, really surprising outcomes. And I think it's really good for the journalism trades. I know we're <laughs> in the journalism business or the, or the scum of the earth. I think I read that some, some authority. Uh, but, All right, James. You know, I, I, I think it's. I think it's going to be a wonderful. What twelve years he has, or sixteen years? <laughs> <laughs> Francine, jump in here. James, I, I guess the uh, you know my confusion in some points is that people say he's really unpredictable, but so far he's just implemented what his campaign was. Right? It's just people didn't want to see it or believe it. 
Perhaps, although uh, you'll note that he wants the dollar to go up and to go down. He thinks that the CIA is akin to the, uh, the old Nazi party, and then it's the most beautiful thing in Washington. Um, so I think there is uh, uh, a great deal of tension between what he professes to believe and what he says. Um, I think that, there, that, that his better angel, for example, uh, better angels would be pointing to something in the way of, of freer trade, um, that is to say, uh, less bureaucratized trade. Uh, but then you wonder uh, when he does such things as threaten to cut off whole countries because they seem to pique him. Um, so I, 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 I root for him. I, I, I voted for the. Well, actually, I voted for Mike Pence. Uh, Donald Trump happened to be on that same ticket, you know. But but even for people who voted for him, I think every other day is a freakout. You know, Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday are fine, right. but Monday, Wednesday, and Friday are just you know you, you wonder. <laughs> All right, what do you wonder about foreign policy, and when will the market start taking notice? Because for the moment, it's largely discounted, right? Uh, I'm not sure it's discounted because I'm not sure where people know what they ought to discount. Um, there is something, um, as a friend of mine remarked, there's something charming about a, a Secretary of State, uh, a Texas oil man named Rex. This promises something fresh and wholesome and American with regard to foreign policy. But that, that's the Secretary of State. Above him is his boss, the President, who seemingly... Um, uh, I, I think the problem with respect to foreign policy is I don't know what the, mm-hmm. what the theory is. Uh, I, I know what uh, the tweets are, but I'm not sure right. what the overarching theory is. Jim Grant, very quickly here. Uh, it's, it's a huge event, folks. March 15th. It's a closed event. Grant Spring 2017 conference with Chuck Royce, Robert Nutt, and uh, Peter Fisher. You're going to have it at the Plaza in Manhattan. Are you timing that perfectly for another Plaza Accord? Are we going to see dollar strength, Jim Grant, to perfectly coincide with your March 15th conference? I think if we see dollar strength, it will be uh, against the will of the sitting president. I think Donald Trump is a low interest rate guy, and he's a, he's a, he's a weak dollar person. And what he wants is a profusion of bank credit at, uh, at easily accessible rates of interest. And that, so I think that the surprise with regard to monetary policy in the Trump administration mm-hmm. will be um, not uh, a rigorous or an orthodox monetary policy, as some of us hoped, but I think it will be a, a reversion of something much more akin to what we had in the 70s, um, uh, a central bank doing the president's bidding and doing it uh, at low interest rates and with lots and lots of dollar bills. Interesting. Jim Grant, not enough time. We'll do this again. Mr. Grant's Grant's interest rate observer is truly a must-read on Wall Street. Jim Grant, of course, looking for higher rates within the cacophony of where we are right now. Joining us now, this has become a real joy. Scott Mather is with PIMCO, and it's wonderful to talk to Mr. Mather uh, here an hour on from the jobs report. The Dow up 114. We're about ready to print 20,000 again. It's a new PIMCO rule. We can only talk to Scott when we print 20,000. Um, Scott, you had the torture of writing a joint memo with one Libby Cantrell about the new administration and investment. And the buried sentence is Scott Mather is more defensive. Why are you more defensive given President Trump? Well, that's uh, it's really because of the uncertainty that, that we think is is out there. I mean, the market right now is is really romancing all the 
all the sugar uh, that can come from uh, increased economic activity. But uh, with respect to uncertainty, both on the political front, uh, with respect to trade policy, with respect to some of the adjustment problems that uh, that may that may uh, occur in the next uh, several quarters, we think the market's a little bit complacent. So when we look at pricing today, we're you know in the corporate market we're we're at multi-year tights and spreads. When we look at implied volatility in the equity market and other measures of, of sort of market uh, complacency, it, it appears that people are just far too complacent about a, a sanguine, smooth path to a to a better destination, and we don't think that's likely. And then when we look at uh, say core interest rates, you look at 10-year rates. We've obviously uh, backed up and yield uh, over 100 basis points. So those, those, there's a lot more value uh, in high-quality fixed income uh, than there was uh, a couple quarters ago. So. You know, that Sorry, all Scott, puts us, yes. What's unlikely, the, the better destination or the smooth path? Smooth path is very, very yeah. unlikely in our opinion. And uh, when we just observe investor behavior so far, it seems like people have been sort of pricing in a very smooth path. And one of the things that we noted uh, that Libby and I have been talking about is that uh, you know, the market's focused on that destination, but really the, the, the easiest things to get done uh, that are on trade policy, and those are some of the things that can cause the most uh, investor consternation and, and uh, confusion and, and upset. Because clearly, it, it, you know, industry by industry, uh, company by company, it creates big differences in winners and losers. And so when you look at the whole agenda of what's likely to get done, it's all those things that cause uh, sort of maximum adjustment problems, maximum pain, that are more likely to happen first. And the things that happen from lower taxes, increased fiscal spending, infrastructure spending, and, and maybe even regulatory reform, you know, those, those are things that probably take, take hold later. What's priced in at the moment? Well, if you look at, uh, in, in, terms of, uh, in terms of interest rates, right, we're, we're looking at uh, the market pricing in just about two hikes this year, two hikes next year. Um, if you look at uh, what's priced in in other parts of the market, once again, we would say the market's pricing in a a return to a higher trajectory of growth, and that that's the only thing that can sort of explain uh, low high equity prices, low implied volatility, and very tight credit spreads at this point. Uh, and, and that's that's really what we're taking issue with. We're saying that the pricing for that is yeah. is probably incorrect. Help me here with a dividend proxy. I did a study, Scott Mather of Procter. I just picked on Procter and Gamble, and their dividend growth over 20 years, and basically you've got a coupon this year off your investment of 20 years ago of about 13 percent because of that dividend growth. Is dividend growth within the PIMCO shop, is it a proxy for yield or has there been a shift? Well, uh, it can be a proxy uh, for for yield a bit. And there there we would just note, you know, it's it's good to look at the last 20 years, but, you know, that dividend growth has to be uh, highly associated with nominal GDP growth. And for a big international company, it's not just the U.S., it's the rest of the world. So we would just note that now uh, that nominal GDP growth has been slowing substantially for years. Uh, at the same p- point in time that people have, have been looking for fixed income proxies, going into equities, counting on a certain amount of dividend growth going forward. And and there's probably an intersection of of, of of reality that's likely to hit when people see the dividends can't grow at the same rate they've grown in the last 20 years, unless there's a big uptick in uh, in that global GDP growth. What is the one thing that people are mispricing when when you look at? And Scott, you talked a little bit about uh, you know readjusting what's priced in, but is there something fundamentally that the markets are ignoring because they're either too afraid of looking at it or because we measure things wrong? 
Well, a couple of big themes that, that come to mind. I mean, we, we've been talking about this one for a while, but we pretty, pretty persistently, we think investors have underpriced the possibility of, of central banks, uh, and not just the Fed, but global central banks engineering a return to inflation target and perhaps even an overshoot of inflation. So that's something we think investors are mispricing. And that has implications, of course, across all asset classes. And the other, the other really big mispricing is, you know, even despite recent historical experience where we've seen markets uh, jump to uh, very different valuations and volatility increase substantially, and we've seen multiple examples of that in the past couple of years, even though real economic activity is not jumping around, that's what happens in the financial markets for a host of reasons. And yet markets still uh, continue to price uh, volatility going forward very low, as if they know with certainty what the economic or policy trajectory looks like. And, and so those are the two big mispricings we're really focused on. Uh, Scott, one final question, if we could uh, get you on to your busy uh, day. When we look at the equity market, I think a lot of investors want to know the, the tilt of allocation of a 401k right now. Is the tilt domestic? Is the tilt foreign investment? Well, that's a, it's a good question. In our multi-asset products, we're, we focused on, uh, well, one, we're not so far away from what we consider sort of a neutral allocation between fixed income and equities. Uh, we think that's the right way to be positioned right now. Uh, we do think when you look at valuations around the world, uh, you know, you've already had a huge repricing in domestically oriented U.S. stocks. So, yes, is there more value in other developed world stocks? Yes. Uh, when you look in, in Europe, yeah. uh, for instance, as an example. We're, so we have slight overweights there. But it's, uh, you know, it's not a time to be all in on foreign right. or all in on emerging markets and, or, or any one sector. We're, we're taking a much yeah. more balanced approach. Uh, Scott Mather, thank you so much with PIMCO. Greatly appreciate it this morning. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.